hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. We have two wonderful guests joining us today. The first one is Samantha M. Bailey, a Toronto-based novelist, journalist, and freelance editor. Her debut psychological thriller, Woman on the Edge, is a number one Toronto star and Globe and Mail bestseller. It received a starred review from Publishers Weekly and was a PW Best Books Pick of the Week. Our other guest, Nita Pronovost, is Vice President and Editorial Director at Simon & Schuster in Canada. Her first novel, The Maid, will be published in 2022. Nita is Samantha's editor, and so they're a dynamic team who I'm really excited to interview. Samantha and Nita, it's so wonderful to have you joining me today. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedules to chat with me about thrillers. And that's something you both know quite a bit about. Nita, with you being an amazing editor, and Sam, with you having such huge success with your psychological thriller, Woman on the Edge. Would you like to begin, Sam, by telling us a little bit about that novel and its journey to publication? First, thanks so much for having us today, Bianca. It's so good. 
uh, to talk to you again. And I always love being with Nita. So this is my fifth full-length novel that uh, has been written. And it is my first traditionally published novel, which was a 17-year dream. I longed for a traditional publishing deal. I ached for it. I just wanted to find the right home. So once I had written the book and signed with my phenomenal agent, Jenny Ben, we spent three and a half years revising it, tearing it down and rebuilding it probably 20 times to try to get it into the best shape possible. And I learned so much. It was basically a masterclass in thriller writing. We then went on submission, finally, after all those years, and I couldn't believe it. The minute Jenny mentioned Simon & Schuster Canada, uh, Nita especially, I was, I mean, over the moon, I was so excited and I was so scared. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. And then uh, when Nita and I chatted on the phone, one of the things I loved the most that Nita said to me was that there was there was going to be revisions. And that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted an editor who would tear it apart with me, whose expertise I could follow. And Nita then acquired the book and made my dreams come true in ways I could never even have imagined. Love hearing people's journeys (laughs) to publication. It's why I always ask, and so many emerging writers struggle with getting to that point. And for me, I just want to let them know that we all struggle and that the only way you're going to ensure you never get published is by giving up. So Nita, can you tell me when you got Samantha's manuscript, what was it about the book that really stood out for you? What did you fall in love with? I would say the the thing I remember most is that scintillating feeling of when you know that the author understands their characters. And as a reader and as an editor, I can sit behind the eyes of those characters and just feel as though I'm whisked away in the experience of being them. And that's one of the key qualities I look for in voice-driven fiction. And, you know, so many of the thrillers we all love are voice-driven, and we have to feel we know that character right away. We may not trust him or her, often her, but we know them. We feel right there. It's as though we're looking out from their eyes and we're living in their skin. And Samantha had that. And she had two of them, in fact. And it's very, very hard to do that, to have two characters alternating back and forth where one character is as riveting and as interesting as the other. That's a hard problem to solve as an editor when you're like, okay, we have this story is told by two people and this one is fascinating. Oh, and the next chapter, I am so bored. That is very, very hard to solve. But Sam had that right from the get go. And I was just so impressed um, with her ability to wield that, that kind of voice as a debut writer. And when you said to her, there will have to be rewrites, what were the things in the novel that even after three years of rewriting with her agent were still problematic for you? Was it strong? Structural? Was it smaller edits? What what did you want to work on with her? Both, I think. I mean, smaller edits are something I do pass after pass with the author. But I think it was really nailing the arc of the thriller that, you know, making sure that every twist and turn was believable, making sure to weed out all coincidences. One of the key things about a thriller is that the bar is set high in terms of the reader's uh, need to believe. And the second we fall into doubt, we're going to put it down and we're going to turn to something else. So it's hard to be that convincing. She'd done a lot of the work, but there was still a lot of ground to cover with that. So that's something we had to find together and just make sure that every plot turn, every twist, every character action, every nuance felt whole and real. Plausibility is so important in this 
in this genre. So I love that you've mentioned that because, you know, one coincidence too many starts becoming unbelievable. And in life, there can be tons of coincidences. I've spoken to people who've somehow ended up with their long lost half sister that they never knew about sitting next to them on a bus. And this is how they figured these things out. But you can't write about that in a novel because it's it's just not plausible. I always say that just because it happens in real life doesn't mean that it can happen in fiction. Fiction in fact, sets the bar much lower in terms of what we will believe. Truth is a very malleable thing in the world of fiction, and we have to find it with great care. That's one of the first things that really resonated with me that Nita said was that just because it happens in real life doesn't mean it will work in fiction. You know, you again, you read, like you said, all these stories, you think that would make an amazing book. But in reality, nobody would believe it in fiction. And the other thing I wanted to say is we actually cut 80 pages from uh, Woman on the Edge before it went to print. So again, even after, you know, three, three and a half years of rewriting, I think Nita excels, excels at, at really tightening the pace and making sure that only what needs to be on the page is on the page. And it, it was amazing to me that we actually, you know, cut a large percentage of, of the book. Yeah, I th- that's interesting that you bring that up. See, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. But um, one thing that I do know that I that I love to work on with my authors, and Sam was so, so good at this, and she understood it intuitively, is giving them just enough. And what I mean by that is you want to give them just enough to hold them to the page, but you don't want to give so much that they can't participate. As soon as a reader can't participate, can't intuit, can't ask questions, then the book is no longer alive to them, and they literally have no reason to read. And I think you know, for any debut authors listening to this, that's an important lesson you're going to have to learn. It comes with time and you won't get it right. In fact, I don't get it right either just because I'm the editor. It comes with time as you work together as a team with an editor and a writer looking for the, the, you know, trying to solve the same problem and draft after draft after draft, you will come and find what is just enough and what is too much. Just on that, Nita, when you say a reader's participating, what you mean there is that a reader's trying to figure it out. And readers love trying to figure out what the twists and turns are going to be. They love trying to figure out what the motivations are. They love trying to say, okay, this is a red herring or this character is really great. And so it's that kind of participation that you want the reader to be involved with so that they can feel a sense of they're in it with this character and they're figuring everything out along with the character. And this is an interesting conversation I had with Lisa Cron, who wrote Story Genius, but Lisa's a firm believer in putting a lot on the page. And we had a bit of a disagreement because I believe in, you know, a trail of breadcrumbs and just enough to keep that person moving forward incrementally. Nita made a really good point about a team. Maybe when you're first starting out, you don't know that it's okay to let people really get in there because no one's trying to change your voice. They're, they're working with you. They're working with you to take your potential and make you shine. And you can't do that by yourself because you can't see what's on the page. Nita said it as, you know, the difference between being an editor and, and an author. I'm an editor as well, although freelance and not for a, a large <laughs> publishing house um, that you can't see. So working with a team and having somebody else really get in there and give you that guidance. And that was a really good point about what's on the page. I think it's selecting the right words. 
And and also taking out 80,000 words, that's something that I have to go through in all of my novels. I am super wordy. I've told people that if, you know, uh, something could be said in three words, I'll find a way to say it in a page, which is a real pain in the ass when you when you're trying to edit a novel. And so tons of my stuff gets edited out. But in terms of that partnership, it's that trust exercise. It's knowing that that person can see the story more objectively than you can. Because Sam, once you've worked on a book for as long as you've worked on it, forget about objectivity. You are so mired in it that you cannot step back and see it objectively. And especially when it comes to reading thrillers, when you get new eyes on your thrillers, always keep in mind that there is only one time that that reader will see that twist and that turn for the very first time. There's only one opportunity for them to be surprised, after which they will reread the novel multiple times, but they know things are coming. And so, you know, they're not as surprised by them, etc. So getting fresh eyes and new readers on something really helps in terms of that. Um, I think everything you say, Bianca, is just so incredibly wise. And uh, it's clear you've learned a lot through your writing. And it's just, I, I'm always heartened to hear that expressed so eloquently. One way I have tried to express that paradigm of of that teammanship that happens when when you have a good editorial author relationship is through something I call the labyrinth. So if you imagine a labyrinth, a maze, there are two people. There's the editor and, and she is sitting on a very, very tall ladder outside of the maze and she's looking down into the maze. And Sam, as an author, is starting at the starting point. She needs to get to the finish line but she's down in the maze and she can't see anything. It is her job to go through the maze. I can't see what she sees. I will never see what's around the corner from her perspective. I will never see what, what you know monsters lurk up ahead. Those are hers to deal with and that's hers to deal with alone. But I can tell her, don't turn right. It goes to a dead end. Don't waste your time on that corner. Go straight and turn left. And together we can find our way. I love that analogy. And Nita, you wear two hats. So you are an editor, but you have now also sold your first novel, The Maid, which is a cozy murder mystery, I think, is how it's being pitched. Could you firstly just tell us a bit more about that novel and also tell us the difference in approach because you're now coming at it from both sides, editor and author. How do you approach them differently? Huh. Well, first I'll tell you about The Maid and then I'll I'll tell you if there is a difference between the approach and I'm not sure that there is. So yes, uh, The Maid is a mystery. It is about a social socially awkward hotel maid and her orderly life is turned upside down one day when she finds a guest who is very, very dead in his bed in one of the hotel rooms. Unfortunately, she soon becomes a suspect in his murder and must learn all kinds of lessons, some about herself and some about the people around her if she wants to clear her own name. And so, you know, I I kind of had an inkling that at some point I wanted to try my hand at fiction. I have ghost written in, in nonfiction quite a bit. But, you know, this idea came to me and I decided, what the heck, I'm going to give it a try. And I must say, I feel very, very lucky because my authors have taught me so much. And in so many ways, it's a very funny wheel and circle that I learned so much through working with them. 
that I felt really, really prepared and was able to work fairly quickly on this on this draft. And I I, I truly owe that to the patience and the the great relationships I've had with my authors who've taught me so much. And they clearly taught you a lot because there was a huge bidding wall for this novel. And it's something I've spoken about before on the podcast. It's every writer's dream to have publishers fighting over your manuscript. And that's what happened with you, Nita. And it's also sold in all kinds of territories now already. Tell us a bit about that experience. I've gone through that experience on the other side so often with my authors, but I wasn't the author. And it all, every twist and turn, and it's, this continues to happen, I have to pinch myself because I always feel like I'm on the, why are they asking me questions? No, no, no. You, you ask the author. Oh yeah, I am the author. So it's, um, it's been a whole other learning experience being, being the person, you know, who's, who's leading it. But I have to say, you know, publishing has taught me a lot and I feel very well prepared to take these next steps. And it is a roller coaster. I mean, any author knows that. And I guess I know that going in and now I'm going to experience that firsthand instead of second. I wish that Nita could have been a fly on the wall the day the deal was announced and all of us, her authors were friends. Um, you know, we really adore each other. We're all like, did you know? Did you know? Oh my God. We were just cheering so loudly. We, uh, Nita, we are so happy for you. We, I mean, we all must get arcs. <laughs> we want to be first in line to read it. Uh, really, you're such an exceptional editor and person and it couldn't happen to a better person. And it's just... It is such a beautiful, poetic circle. And can I just say on that, one of the reasons why I love the Toronto literary scene is that sense of camaraderie with the writers and the women writers, especially. Writing feels so solitary. A lot of the struggles feel solitary, but there is this community, especially in Toronto, with writers across different genres and they support each other wonderfully and congratulate each other and drink lots of champagne when you're celebrating and then kind of hold each other up when when the news is is disappointing and so again my advice to you as writers is to find your community find your people and find the people who know what you're going through and who can be there with you through through all of that we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. 
Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Right, so I'd like us to now turn to the craft of writing thrillers and just talk about what constitutes a good thriller and the kind of things that you as a emerging writer need to be paying attention to if you're writing in this genre. But also remember, a lot of these are integral story elements. So you may not be writing a, a thriller, but a lot of this applies to any kind of story that you're telling. So a thriller is a fast-paced novel full of conflict, tension, suspense, unexpected twists and turns, and high stakes. Every single scene and element in a thriller is meant to propel the action forward, to test the characters, to kind of put them through this crucible, you know, a baptism of fire, and take the readers on a roller coaster ride that will leave them on the edge of their seats. You want it to be a page turner. This is the kind of thing you want your readers staying up late at night, getting just one more chapter, just one more chapter, as they try and figure everything out. And some advice that thriller writers get given is to start with action. And Sam, you did that so amazingly with Woman on the Edge. If you could just tell us how you started with action in that novel. Thank you for that. What I learned over the course of those 17 years of being on submission and and, and writing novels and, and not getting where I wanted to be was I realized how important a high concept premise is. If you can pitch your book in one or two sentences and grab attention, then you have a high concept 
premise. So it doesn't need to be mine, but it does need to be something that is going to start right away and grab you. So for me, it was pure luck that I came up with that premise on a Toronto subway platform, seeing a woman holding a newborn. It was just one of those lightning bolt moments, I think, that I knew that that was the premise I wanted. I knew it was going to start the book. I knew there was no other way I could start the book. And over all the revisions, that never changed. The first chapter was revised. It was made tighter and it was, you know, the pace was was quickened and making sure the motivations were very clear of the characters and that the character's arc started in a specific place so that she had room to grow. But the opening was always the same. Morgan Kincaid is a social worker who has experienced loss and trauma and betrayal. And she is a social worker who is just on a subway platform waiting uh, to go home after a day of work. She just wants to go home. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. And a complete stranger approaches her with a newborn in her arms and says, take my baby. And it is the very first line of the book. And it was always the first line of the book. I always like to start with the strongest first line I I possibly can. And she then says Morgan's name and Morgan is stunned because she has no clue who this woman is and what's going on. And she thrusts the baby into Morgan's arms and jumps in front of the oncoming train, or so it seems. Right. So vivid, vivid action immediately grabs the reader and runs with that. Nita? That, that's exactly right. And you, when you see a pitch like that and a premise like that as an editor, I mean, it's just, it's a gift from the gods. Already, immediately, I'm asking myself, what if that was me? What if I was the woman on the, on the platform and somebody handed me a baby? See how instantly it happens that I can translate the pitch to me becoming the main character. And it's that ability to, again, as we talked about before, step behind the eyes that tells me this is a high concept thriller premise that has the potential to be on the bestseller list. And not just important for you as an editor, Nita, because if you want to acquire a novel, you have to pitch it to your sales and marketing team and PR, and they need to be able to differentiate this thriller from every thriller on the market. And the thing is, tons of thrillers get sold. So you think that there's this huge market for it, which there is, but that makes the competition that much more fierce. So it's not enough to write a really good book. It has to be a book that's going to stand out from everything else on the market to make Nita's job as the editor easier to acquire the novel and to make the sales and marketing's job easier to sell that novel. Okay, so moving on from there, and and Sam, something you said I found to be very important. So you spoke about how she has this traumatic backstory, but the reader doesn't need to know this in the opening pages. The reader does not want to be bogged down by all this backstory. It's fine that they know she's traumatized, but you don't need to tell them up front. Nita? Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's really relevant and is important to something else we raised earlier about action, action, action. Obviously, a thriller is based on action. However, one of the pieces of magic of Sam's premise, and this is something really important if you want to be one of those high concept best-selling authors, and you know, as you say, it's a very competitive pool, is that action doesn't only mean literal action. Action in the realm of the thriller means, yes, there may be a car chase, but the action that happens internally, psychologically, emotionally can be a real engine and driver of a thriller as well. And that speaks to one of my next points, which is high stakes. 
something has to be at stake for that character. Something huge has to be at stake for them. It can't be something that's easily turned away from. It can't be something that's easily fixable. And it needs to be something that has a huge impact on their lives as well. So when you begin writing these kind of books, you have to say, what are the stakes for my character? If they don't succeed, why is this awful for them? Why is it tragic? If they do succeed, what does that lead to? And then what other obstacles can they face in the process? Because any story is about throwing a lot of conflict and a lot of obstacles at your characters. So we were talking about, you said you need to be on board with character, but it, they don't necessarily have to be reliable. You don't necessarily have to trust them. Let's talk about the unreliable narrator in thrillers. Well, this is one where, you know, I think we borrow from the page of life a little bit more. Who can actually say they know themselves 100%? I mean, that's ridiculous. We see ourselves through a lens and we see everyone else through a lens. And somehow um, the exploration of that in the thriller and in most fiction is just utterly beguiling and part of our exploration of understanding the human condition. And yeah, when you look at that, you think, huh, I guess thrillers might be doing something after all. I guess they're not just throwaway, huh? I think thrillers and, and, and recently the unreliable narrator has really come to the fore because... It's all about the thriller exists on something known and something unknown, something hidden and something shown. It's all about the reveal, isn't it? And so part of that can be inside the character itself. And the reader then has to go on that participatory journey of figuring out what is hidden and what isn't. And that's, a, again, it's a way to engage the reader. Right. So thriller is social commentary, guys. I absolutely love that approach to it as well. And so much tension in reading comes between the reader and the author, what the reader knows that the character doesn't know, what the character knows, but what they're not telling the reader, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that participation again that leads to so much of that uh, of that tension in the reading experience of thrillers. Something as well is twists and turns. You need to keep your readers guessing. There needs to be red herrings. There has to be something that comes and it's like, wow, the reader goes, I did not see that coming. But it, again, it has to be plausible. Like we said earlier, you can't have this twist coming out of absolutely nowhere and the readers are sitting there going, what the hell? That just was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm putting the book down. Sam, in terms of when you were writing, how were you planning your twists and turns? I'm assuming that you plotted this novel very, very tightly. So before I wrote Woman on the Edge, I was a panster. I would just sit down and write it all out. And it was my happy place. And it was not going to work for this book, for a thriller. For me, I know other authors who actually can do it for thrillers. I can't. It was my agent. So it was Jenny Bent who told me to plot out the book in 50 page increments. So scene by scene in 50 page increments so that I could see a map of exactly what was happening from beginning to end, what didn't need to be there, where things needed to be placed. And I mean, that helped me immensely so that I was able to figure out step by step, where did I need to drop the clues? Where do I need to leave the cliffhangers? Where do I need to place the twist, when are the twists going to happen? And then it was the same with with Nita. As she went through it, she also showed me how to do a map from the beginning, the middle, and the end, figuring out at which moments you reveal the information. And it's incredibly hard as an author to know when to reveal that information. And you don't want to necessarily trick the reader. 
you know, you want to be as open with your reader as possible without revealing everything. It's a very, very fine balance, which is why it takes, for me at least, so many drafts. As I'm working on my next novel right now, I have, you know, Nita in my head <laughs> as I write. And this is actually so wonderful tonight because I'm nearing the end of this draft and everything resonates. And I also think no matter what, you tend to make the same mistakes again, no matter how much you've learned, you can still make those same mistakes. And so you have to have somebody tell you what those mistakes are. And for me, it is extremely difficult to know when exactly to reveal the information. So I have a 25 page outline that I print out and that I go through again and again and again. And I change constantly. I go through each chapter and I go through scene by scene again to see if something's in the wrong place. It, it you know, it really, really is for me a step-by-step process. And knowing when to reveal things and when to keep things back and when to have the twists and turns speaks to pacing, which is so incredibly important in the thriller, you know, in terms of literary fiction, Fiction, pacing's not that important, but in this kind of book, you need to get the pacing right and the tension right. Nita, what's your advice to writers in terms of pacing? And I feel that this is something especially that comes out and tightens up in the editing phase. So in drafting, it's a bit harder to kind of get that pacing right. But when it comes to editing, I think pacing is one of the reasons why editors take out however many thousand words from a novel. Yeah, I guess what I would say about that is one of the very, very common problems I see, not only from debut authors, but even the more experienced ones, is that their first drafts of thrillers will set up beautifully the description and the dynamics and all the setting and all all of that stuff we need to know to believe in the world at the beginning. And then halfway through the book, when I really want the tension to ramp up and for the economy of words and actions to start, they're still using the pacing from the first half. So I always say, just think of your book as two halves. There's the first and the second half. The pacing that you use in the first half is a very different style of writing than the pacing in the second half. By the middle point, you must trust your reader. You must trust that you've done your job right, that we know who these characters are, we understand the dynamics between them, and you can move from action to action more fluidly, whether that's psychological action or literal action, without so much interstitial description, because you've done your job right in the first half. And that will lead to a natural speeding up. If you don't have that set in your mind as an author, however, you're going to have a pacing problem, and it's probably going to be in the second half. Middles, guys. They say middles is where writers are made. Um, And I believe that because I feel most writers know their beginning and they know their ending. But to keep people invested in the middle bits is really the tricky part. And you kind of want that roller coaster pacing. You want something that's super fast paced, lots of action, lots of reveals. And then you need to give the reader time to kind of catch their breath. And then you need to start amping that up again, keeping them hanging. And I think something like uh, the Vinci Code was so good at that. And I think that's why that book was so popular because of the pacing of the novel. Right. Let's talk about the big final showdown in terms of big climaxes. The ending is what everybody's working towards. It's what's the writer, the characters, 
everybody is working towards this ending. And if you don't nail the ending, everything falls flat again as well. Sam, have you got advice for anyone on endings? That's actually, that's hard because I find endings difficult. I do need to do draft after draft and, and, and get a lot of guidance from, you know, my critique partners and editor and to really make sure to nail that landing. I think with the ending, like Nita said, it needs a fast pace. It needs a fast pace. And for me, I have to make sure that my ending is about four chapters long. So I have one chapter where it's starting to unfold. And then the next chapter, it's it's heating up. It's really heating up. And we're going to end on like a really big cliffhanger where something, something is about to happen in that next chapter. You're going to want to hopefully, you know, tear through the pages. That final showdown, that, you know, the third, the chapter right before that ending, whether it's the epilogue or the wrap up, whatever it is, has to have as much word economy as possible, as little explanation as possible, as little kind of exposition as possible, which is quite difficult when you are trying to, you know, show the reader and reveal everything that's been leading up to this point where you don't want to say, aha, this is what I did and this is why I did it. <laughs> you know? um, so making sure that there is a lot of action. Again, as, as Nita said, the action is in the emotion. The action is in the physical description. The action is in the character's arc, you want to make sure that the character's arc, you can show how much they have changed from the beginning of the book to the end, how much agency this character has from the beginning to the end of the book. Every author ends a thriller differently. Some end it with such a shocking twist you never see coming. I mean, it turns the whole book on its head and you're left thinking, oh my God, what just happened? Which is brilliant. I tend to resolve. I tend to want not the happiest of endings, but a, a sense of resolution and a, a sense of redemption with, with a twist as well. But I think every author has a different idea of what kind of ending they want to leave their readers with. And just going back to what you said earlier, we speak all the time about show, don't tell show don't tell and in novels there's a lot of chance for telling which is your exposition so you know we say focus mainly on showing but there is opportunity for telling in the exposition but that's something you want to stay away from in those final sort of climactic scenes you want to be everything needs to be unraveling on the page your reader needs to be seeing it all happening and they can then make sense of it based on that but in terms of wrapping up Nita in terms of tying together all the subplots and explaining all the things, how important do you think that is in terms of the reader going, oh, okay, this all makes sense now? How many questions do you think you can relieve them with at the end? Well, I think you have to relieve them of most. You can you can allow them to leave with a few extra hanging threads, just a, a little bit of mind fodder that they have to carry with them beyond the last page. That's always a very smart thing to do. But yeah, for the most part, I think most readers are going to feel unsatisfied if they don't have a sense of real closure. And, you know, there is a real art to, you know, hiding something in plain sight and then saying it was here all along. And in so many ways, the thriller is such a set genre. And yet, how do you discover the uniqueness and the way to do that in a different way that no one has done before? The other caution I would say about endings is something I like to call the Scooby-Doo. And um, I will often see it creep up in the early drafts. 
So you will perhaps recall Scooby-Doo cartoons when you were a kid and, you know, you get to the end of the episode and the villain takes off the mask and then goes into a long monologue about why they did all the evil things they did and every single step that they did in the criminal acts that they committed. It is a very tempting thing when you are an exhausted writer and you've written three quarters of your book and you're coming to the ending to just get it down on the page. And very often, your first draft, it's going to be a Scooby-Doo. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the Scooby-Doo on the first try, but then you have to go back and edit yourself and, you know, get back to the root of the characters and have the characters reveal themselves in more sophisticated ways. Dialogue can be your friend. Stay away from those long monologues of explanation because nobody who is ever caught ever, you know, confesses to every single action that they did. Yeah. And then, you know, you can, you can catch yourself doing that and then edit yourself to a much better place as you finesse the scenes over and over again. Well, guys, we're at the end of our episode it's been so wonderful chatting to samantha and nita i feel like we could chat for hours more and hopefully i'll be able to get them back again as i say these are things specific to thrillers but good storytelling is good storytelling and what readers want is a good story well told and so these are principles that you could apply to pretty much any genre that you're working with and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.